I'm Liz Guinness and welcome to Talking Australia. Today I'm chatting with Brigitte Muir, one of my all-time adventure heroes. Brigitte was the first Australian woman to summit Everest and the first woman ever to climb the seven summits. Her take on the world is nothing short of extraordinary and it's my complete pleasure to chat with her today. So sit back and enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Talking Australia, Brigitte, and it's an absolute honour to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Liz. Obviously, our conversation today will be kind of wide-ranging. For people who don't know um, who you are, um, and they must have been living under a rock somewhere very far away. Oh, they must um, be I'm young. Hoping... <laughs> 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 no, come on now. We're young. We're all young. Um, I Probably it would be great if you could just give a little recap of those those years. So for me, I guess it would start obviously it started when you were much younger um, and interested in climbing but in terms of achievements I think it kind of started when you climbed Shivling is that the right uh, pronunciation? Yes it is Shivling yeah Yeah, Shivas Mountain in northern India uh, near the source of the Ganges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess so I've been climbing for quite a while already I started my first expedition was in 1979 to Canada to the Logan Mountains and I'd never been in the plane before so it was a great adventure. I was still at university at the time. And I'd been climbing in France and other places in Europe. But really, how my outdoors life started was underground. I discovered caving when I was at high school and I absolutely loved it. I spent all my spare time, Wednesdays, Saturdays and Sundays, caving all over Belgium and, and all over Europe as well after a while. Can I just stop you for a second? I guess people um, should also know you're probably picking up the fact that there's a bit of an accent there. So when we're talking about your childhood and your schooling, we're talking about you um, growing up in Belgium? We are, yes. With French as my first language. So you just mentioned as well Wednesdays, Saturdays and Sundays. Is that a different sort of uh, schooling system you had going on there? Um... Well, I'm not sure what schooling is these days, but when I was at school, Wednesday afternoons, Saturdays and Sundays were free. So that's when I went caving. Yeah, Uh any time that I wasn't at school, I was caving, basically. And and there were caves nearby your home? Um, There were, close enough anyway. if, If I couldn't find anyone who had a car to go, I'd hop on my bike and ride the closest one I guess that I did on my own was about 15 kilometers away um, Mm -hmm, up and down mm -hmm. little valleys and little hills in Mount in in Belgium Mm -hmm. I was just totally obsessed so anytime I could get there I would find a way to get there (laughs) wherever there might be I'm wondering why you were obsessed with caving I I did caving as a teenager as well and I absolutely loved it um but um, for a lot of people, they're, they're kind of like, that's absolutely not anything they'd ever want to do. What was, the, what was the draw for you? Funnily enough, it was the space. Because in Belgium, everything is small and crowded. Even, you know, you can go for walks in the woods. Um, you can lose yourself on the river or whatever. But there are factories everywhere. There are houses everywhere. There is culture everywhere, of course. Lots of old buildings. But mm. then... You know, if, if, if you discover caving like, like I did at high school, you get 
that window of darkness which opens onto another world. And once you're in the darkness, I mean, you've only got your little light that gives you a little bit of space. Um, but then there's the dark around and that dark becomes space and it could be narrow, but you don't know because it's dark. You don't see mm -hmm. anything. And, and it's, a, it's a darkness like you don't get anywhere else. Isn't it? It's just complete black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Exactly. Yeah. And it felt so comfortable. It really felt like I was at one with everything around me. Would you go caving on your own? I did go caving on my own, but the, the most fun, I think, was with other people, um, boys. <laughs> Let's not forget okay. I was 15, 16 at the time, and I, I was the only girl. <laughs> I was 15 once too. <laughs> no, I just I was a tomboy, you know, from way back, and I, I just uh -huh. loved being out there and, and pushing myself and having adventures. You know, I'm someone who grew up. Uh, my first book was a Tintin comic. Did, do you know Tintin? I do, yeah. Yeah, and my, my mum would just put a book in, a comic in my hands while she was doing the housework and I would just sit there and lose myself in Tintin's adventures. And, mm. of course, there were mountains and temples and oh, mm. treasures and jungles and all sorts of things. So when I finally got the opportunity to do something like Tintin, I just jumped in. Oh, I love it. That's a wonderful. I've never heard an adventure tell me that they were inspired by Tintin before. That's wonderful. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a first. So caving then led to how did what what happened next for you? Well, I met people, of course. That's what happens when you get out of your comfort zone and, and you just push yourself and, and you discover. You, your horizon broadens. That's probably the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And within that horizon, there are other people. And learning is really big for me to me as long as i'm learning i'm alive if i'm yeah. not learning anymore what the hell am i doing on this planet um mm. so the people i was meeting were teaching me whatever they knew caving uh but also some of those caves were into rock climbing and that's how i finally poked my nose out of the hole and looked up and, whoa, there was a cliff there. There are lots of limestone <laughs> cliffs in Belgium along rivers. That's how I got into rock climbing. Okay. And so I know that when you, you came to Australia and were rock climbing as well, how did you end up coming to Australia? Oh, it happened in a funny way. Um, at the end of the 1970s, everybody I knew who was a rock climber in Belgium um, had been climbing mountains overseas. And I thought, oh, that sounds really exciting, you know, even higher. <laughs> um, and everybody at that time was going to Africa because it's closer to Europe than anywhere else. And their goal was usually Kenya, Mount Kenya was a favourite at the time, or Ruwenzori. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go and climb Mount Kenya. I, yeah. I was at university at, by that stage, doing my first year at uni, I think. And what were I, you studying, uh, just as a matter of interest? I was studying um, archaeology, history of art and musicology. Wow, interesting. Yeah, another inspiration. Guess who? <laughs> Indiana Jones! <laughs> I love it! <laughs> I do Again, not have so the hat. 
<laughs> all the whip. But you got the, I was going to say all the whip. <laughs> <laughs> I did try, but no, that wasn't for me. <laughs> but definitely the, the adventures, definitely the adventures. Indeed, indeed, yes. So there I was at university doing um, archaeology. Prehistory was my favourite. Caves, fancy that. Um, mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. I wanted to find out how much a ticket to go to Africa was. And I I had a friend, Marcel, who had a travel agency nearby. So I went and saw her and I said, all right, tell me, Marcel, how much is a ticket to Kenya? And she started looking at prices on her desk because there were no computers in those days. And she told me, huh, that's interesting. The price of a ticket to Kenya is actually the same as the price of a ticket to Australia. Whoa, and so that was it. You know, I was, no, not to say, oh, forget about Kenya. That is so 1979. I'm going to Australia. <laughs> so I did. I, um, I rounded up three friends and we hired a camper van and we did a tour around the eastern side of Australia and ended up mm-hmm. at Mount Rapalies, of all places, mm, because we were into rock climbing and I'd written letters to a few different people who had uh, climbing magazines in Australia at the time and didn't have much information but everybody seemed to be um, thinking that Rapalese was the place to go if you wanted to go rock climbing so we ended yeah, up for people who don't know who are listening that's in Victoria it's um, just just filling people in yeah yes it's in, actually it's in my backyard <laughs> and has been since then <laughs> Yes, fell in love with the Rappalies. Um, I met a lovely man at the time called Roddy McKenzie and we ended up going out. Then through him I met uh, John Muir who became my husband and that's how I ended up moving to Australia. Mm-hmm. So I heard that um, when John became your husband you were given a tent as a, as a present and you lived in a tent for the first 12 months of your marriage, that's, is that right? That's right, yeah, that was always yeah. a bit of a joke. Like his parents gave us, bought us our first home. <laughs> Very <laughs> generous of them. Oh, I know, I know. Forever grateful, yeah, indeed. And uh, but, so, that, yeah, that was a family tent which we pitched at Mount Rapalese. Well, and it looked great in the summer, although hot, and then cold in the winter, I would think. I come from Belgium, darling. Yeah, true. <laughs> As I said it, I thought, oh, no, perhaps not. It's, <laughs> it's, all, it's all relevant. It is, it is. And, and, in fact, as I speak to you, I'm sitting in my tent in my garden because I've got something about tents. I love camping. I think mm. I've spent about nine years of my life in a tent. And yeah. I cannot imagine having a house without having a tent to go to. So you have a tent permanently set up in your backyard? I do, yeah. Ah. Winter and what do, what do you well. do in that tent? Just I sleep. <laughs> sleep? <laughs> I write, I read, oh, I look out wow. of the window at the birds outside. <laughs> ah. So that year in a tent, you were climbing every day, I imagine? We were, when we were at Rapalese. Now, mm. there were other things that happened during our life. Um, based at Rapalese and that was great picking because in those days that was how climbers made money to go climbing overseas and once there was enough money to go um, to buy a ticket and go climbing in the Himalaya we'd go climbing. India um, India was a favourite at the time. 
Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. If I skip now to heading off to Shivling and, and climbing that as your first probably big mountain, is, is that true and correct to say? I guess so, yes, yeah. It was, yeah. It was a new route, so that was pretty special. Uh-huh. And you were the first um, Australian woman to do that, is that right? We were the first people anywhere first to people. climb that new route, the Southwest Ridge on Shivling's West Summit, yeah. And that summit had only cli- been climbed once. So what was the draw for you for that um, for that particular mountain? Because, you know, as you know, there are many. What was, what was it? Was it the draw of a new route? Um, no one had um, ever done it before? or You know what happens with mountains, for me anyway, I fall in love with a mountain. Mm. So that was part of it. It was, it was a communal falling in love, I guess, because John was into it and there were um, other people who came with us one first time. Um, Ed Neve and Terry Tremble. Then we didn't get anywhere that year and we went back the next year with Graham Hill, who ended up becoming my uh, brother-in-law, actually. And that, that mountain is just so beautiful, plus it's very special. It's, it's a spiritual um, space. There are lots of holy men living at, on a meadow just at the foot of the mountain. Um, there is the source of the Ganges nearby, so there's all that mystique and that, that peak, which is wow. just stunning. It's so beautiful. It kind of, you know, it's a big, oh, I don't know how to describe it, but it just jumps into the sky almost. And that new route was the perfect line. It was so beautiful. It was very hard too, and we climbed it in yo-yo style, which meant that we would climb up to a certain point. There were three of us, uh, as I said, Graham, Hill, John Muir and myself, carry all, all our stuff there, um, then hop again, climb up to another place, another camp, move all our stuff there, and then do it again. Um, it, was, it was very, very special. And it was very scary too, because it's very steep. Mm. And had you, in, in terms of sort of the training for it, had you climbed peaks like that before? Before shivling. Oh, golly gosh. Um, well, I've climbed mountains in Europe. So, I'd, mm-hmm. yeah, I've done steep climbs before. But a new route, no, that was the first time, a new route, yep. That would be incredibly um, thrilling, I would imagine, but also uh, a, a great sense of, was it trepidation or fear? Or how, how, what was the overwhelming feeling for you as you were sort of climbing? Uh, excitement or a mix of everything? If I've got to be honest about it, it was a very strange time because John and I were in, in the process of splitting up at the time. So ah, it right. was it was a very emotional climb. And our lives an officer had actually died um, on the normal route that we were climbing as a warm-up mm-hmm. for the the new route, um, totally unrelated to us. It was it was it was shocking. It was very sad, uh, but it happened, and mm. we decided to 
um, keep going and go ahead with the new route. But all that meant it was, gosh, it was a soap opera, basically. <laughs> and, and we did get to the summit, and I remember Graham climbing that last very steep spire and he gets to the top and there's just hardly any space there and then he goes around and he goes where to now and that was exactly my feeling at the time you know where to now where's life going to take me now mm, mm. I, I look I think for obviously the majority of of the population who have never done anything like that it, it's kind of hard to imagine what it must feel like when you get to the top of a mountain um, and have that sense of, um, I, I think it might be like, I can do anything now. I can, you know, anything I set my mind to. Is that, is that how you felt? Not that time, but, you know, I've never felt that on top of any mountain, quite frankly. Mm. No, that's, that's what you think once you're down the mountain. Yeah, right. Because it's all very well to get to the summit of a mountain, but there's also the small matter of coming down in one piece. And I've heard a lot of um, climbers, high altitude climbers, say that's actually the more dangerous period of time as well, the coming down. Is that? Mm, absolutely right. You've lost your focus. You, you're not trying to reach the summit anymore. Mm. And you have to keep that focus going all the way down, step after step after step. Because if you make one mistake, it's not, oh, I'm going to hurt myself. It's, oh, I'm going to die. It's just, I, yeah, again, I think it's one of those things that most people kind of can't fathom, really. Um, yeah. It's total focus. It's totally being in the here and now, which to me has always been the challenge in life, to be here and now, because that's all there is. And it's so hard to achieve in what I call real life. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, isn't it? And there, you know, there, I suppose there are activities that people do do in real life. For instance, say gardening, you know, and you're fully present in that moment, and you know, which is why it's, I guess, a gift for people. Um, but yes, I can't. I think people climbing a mountain is a whole other level of in the now. It is. It is. Yes. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm still working on doing that um, here and now. <laughs> <laughs> so what we might do is move on to so you've done that you I hate that term bagged that peak because I feel like it's it really doesn't sum up what you've done um but you've achieved that goal and then then what happens for you um from then on what 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 are your next plans your next thoughts about where you want to go what you want to achieve okay so we're getting towards 1988 now and oh I went to the Karakoram in 87 to climb mm -hmm. in in Pakistan Mm -hmm. The aim of the exercise was to climb Gashabrim 2. And it was a very bad season. Uh, lots of people died. The expedition fell into bits. Um, most people left and I ended up staying on with uh, Jeff Little and Lydia Brady. We joined a Basque expedition and... Um, sorry, we were climb there to climb Hidden Peak. Um, but that didn't happen because of avalanches and people dying, as I was mentioning. Then we mm. stayed on and got onto Gashabrum 2 illegally. Very naughty. Rule breaker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't get to the summit. I, um, I have problems with my sight. I'm, I'm short-sighted and I was wearing contact lenses and I lost one of them and I decided mm. it was wiser to mm. come down rather than keep going and risk um, tripping over. But they went on to the summit, so climbed it and came back down. 
Mm-hmm. And so that, that was 87. And of course, I learned a lot on that trip about, you know, what I could and could not do. And um, by then, John and I had gone our separate ways. And in 88, he was invited to go and be a member of the Australian Bicentennial Everest Expedition. Mm. Mm. And I was not. How did I, I that would have. I feel like that would have riled me. Oh, it did. It <laughs> did rile me big time. <laughs> Putting it mildly. <laughs> mildly yeah, riled. Yeah, yeah. So um, what did I do? Um, I remembered someone that we'd met in 1984 when John was climbing uh, the West Bridge of Everest with Peter Hillary and a few other climbers. Mm. That, was, that guy was called Bill Bass and he was an American millionaire who had climbed the highest peak on each continent. And I thought, hmm... I like traveling, I like climbing mountains, and I need a long-term goal, so why not that? And I lost myself into uh, climbing the highest peak on each continent, that's how it started. It was a bit of a sore there, and also the fact that I was always really good at starting things and not finishing them, and I was a, really a dare to myself. Don't stop until you climb those seven summits. And um, I think from some reading I've done that you you hoped that you would do that quite quickly. Um, is that right? Yes, I was hoping to, you know, find sponsorship. While I was working for the ones that were affordable, um, I just got uh, jobs, you know, whatever was going really and, and saved money and went and climbed. But when it mm-hmm. came to the expensive ones, uh, Vincent in Antarctica and Everest in Asia, I, I had to mm. find sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And was that hard to find sponsorship? It certainly wasn't easy. It's a full-time job looking for sponsors. Mm. Mm. It's, 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 yeah. And what happened was that it wasn't my story anymore. It was, it was a, it became more than a one-person story. Of course, John was always there to support me morally and however we could. Mm-hmm. But to find money, I needed people who were in the game and um, people like Anne Tyndall, who's, uh, who was a video producer in Melbourne, Ian Darling, mm-hmm. who's uh, a dear friend in Sydney, and they helped me find money to go to climb Everest and Vincent. And that was it was just so special to be able to to feel that I was inspiring them and at the same time to be inspired by what they were doing and the fact that they believed in me. That was, that was the biggest surprise to me. It was like, wow, these people are actually giving me their time and, and, mm. and they believe in me. Wow. Huh. Did that help? Yeah. I, 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 always, it's always, I feel like it's always amazing when anyone believes in me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I can totally appreciate that, that sense. Um, well, Vincent and um, Everest, the last two that you needed to, to summit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I know that um, with um, the Antarctic um, trip, you started a, your own guiding company. Um, to help fund that. That's right, yes. Um, yeah, I thought that was genius, a genius move. <laughs> when there's a will, there is a way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I was very determined. <laughs> yes, so, yeah, guided on Aconcawa for quite a while. Um, and Vincent, I, I got a client to go to Vincent, so that was great. And, and I um, managed to get sponsorship uh, to plug the hole because one client was definitely not enough to pay for the two of us to get to Mount Vincent. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we, he didn't get to the summit, um, John, from Melbourne, mm-hmm. but I did. It was, it was terrible weather, really, really yeah, bad. Yeah, the winds, yes. With the oh, winds, we ended up spending 10 days in our little tent waiting for the wind to abate. And let oh, me gosh. tell you, that wasn't fun. Because no, the waiting. Not just the waiting, it was raining inside the tent. Because yeah. it was snowing outside and, of course, I was cooking oh, inside right. the tent, feeding us. and So it was rain for 10 days. Plus, um, I don't know, um, but the smell in the tent after 10 days of sharing a tiny <laughs> mountain tent with a man. Um, <laughs> I was I interesting. Well, <laughs> well, maybe I can't imagine, actually. You don't want I to. I don't want to imagine. That's exactly right. Oh, dear me. That's it for part one of our conversation with Brigitte Muir. Don't forget to join us for part two. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Also... Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.